Scripture reading this morning comes from Exodus 33, verses 12 through 17. You can find it on page 73 of the Pew Bible. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up these people. But you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Um, I want to repeat the uh, announcement chunk or treat tomorrow. Um, so I, I know for some of us, we may think, what would I use to decorate my car with? And if that's the concern about um, volunteering your car for chunk or treat, I want to assure you that we are a Baptist church. And what that means is that we have not thrown anything away in about 30 years. And so we have 30 years of VBS supplies, and you can find anything and anything you need I uh, just speak to Mickey afterwards, and she'll show you the miracle of our supply closet. So I um, encourage you to check that out. Again, hope you can make it tomorrow. It really is a way that we can serve and, and minister to our neighborhood. Let me open us again with a quick word of prayer. Father, as we come before you, we want to hear your voice whisper and speak to us in the way that you know that we need to hear you. So may our ears be open, may our minds be lively, may our hearts beat with yours. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Um, The uh, Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines the word renew in the following way. To renew is to make like new, to restore to freshness, vigor, or perfection. We use the word renew in all kinds of ways that more or less align with that. If you have a subscription to Microsoft, probably once a year you get a email reminder, hey, it's time to renew your subscription. It's time to make it like new, right? You'll get a whole other year of all the benefits of Microsoft Office. Once a year, Mark and I have the opportunity to exchange our disagreements over all of my various magazine subscriptions, and I must explained to my very skeptical wife that yes, these are absolutely necessary for my ministry. Uh, a, script, a subscription to The Economist and to The Atlantic and First Things and a couple others I can't think of. Like I'd be out of God's will if I wasn't reading those on a regular basis. So I renew those once a year and only have to pay for it once a year. Saving money that way, sort of. 
There are more serious ways that we use the word renewal too, right? And, and when New Year comes, a lot of times people will take that time to renew some of their deepest commitments, take the passing of a year as a time to sit back and think, who do I want to be? Who, do, who am I becoming? What kind of life do I want to live? And they'll make New Year's resolutions. They're renewing commitments to things they care about. Or sometimes when people have been married for a long time, they do marriage vow renewals. Again, renewing their commitment that we're in this till death, do us part. We're beginning a six-part series on renewal as well, but it's a, a particular kind of renewal. It's the most important kind of renewal. It's spiritual renewal. How can we be made like new, restored to freshness and vigor spiritually? If you remember from when we read from Ephesians 4, Paul talks about, he exhorts the church in Ephesus to be renewed. And that's going to be kind of the backdrop. Ephesians 4, verses 21 and 23 will be kind of a backdrop for this whole six-part series. We're not going to look at Ephesians 4 every week, but it's going to provide kind of, the, again, the background for what we're looking at. In case you don't remember those two verses, surely you heard of him and were taught in him, in keeping with the truth that is in Jesus, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. That's the backdrop of this series of spiritual renewal, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. That's interesting, Paul, in that verse, he uses kind of a double description. He could have said to be, you know, ex- he could have exhorted the church to be renewed in their spirit, a reference to the inner person. He could have said, be renewed in your mind, again, that be renewed in the inner part of you, but he says, in the spirit of your mind. It's a, it's a redundancy. And he's saying it to make a point, be renewed in the deep parts within you. It's what the great Jewish philosopher Philo called the man within the man, or the woman within the woman. And this isn't the only place that Paul talks about renewal. It's a common theme in a lot of his letters. So Romans 12, 2 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Being made new, being restored to freshness and vigor. 2 Corinthians 4, 16, so we do not lose heart, Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And finally, Colossians 3, 9 to 10, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. To four different churches and four different letters, Paul either exhorts the church to be renewed or gives an example of his own life as one that is being renewed, as an example for them to follow. And the reason why I think it's, it would be good to spend just six weeks kind of looking at this idea of spiritual renewal is that if you're anything like me, and I would guess in this sense you probably are a whole lot like me, is that in my faith, in my walk with Christ, the tendency is for it to become routine. And not routine in the sense that I'm doing the same things, but in the sense it becomes rote. I'm doing the things of Christianity, but they become just going through the motions. So, but they're not affecting my heart. So I go to church, right? I mean, it'd be kind of a problem if the pastor didn't go to church. Of course, I'm going to do that. But it can become a going through the motions. We sing, we read, we hear, we pray. We can read the Bible. We can serve. We can pray. And it can quickly become, again, just kind of a rote practice, And so Paul tells us, don't just go to church, don't just read your Bible, don't just pray, although those are, do those, but be renewed in the spirit of your minds. 
be restored to freshness, be made young again in your faith and the sense of vitality. So I thought, what better way to end the year 2022 than to spend some kind of sustained reflection and thinking and ultimately seeking renewal, both individually for ourselves, but also as a church body. What does that look like? Now, as a, um, and, and, and the way I'm structuring this series is going to be divided into three parts. First part, we'll look at where does renewal begin? That'll be today and then in two weeks again when I preach. The middle part will be uh, the means of renewal, how it comes about. And the last part will be the outcome of renewal. Now, as a, as a caveat, spiritual renewal is an expansive topic, and there will be much that could be said that I won't say, much that, sh- that, um, that should be said that I won't be able to say. But hopefully, by God's grace, everything that needs to be said to this beautiful bride of Christ that meets on the corner of Highland and Vine, hopefully everything that needs to be said will be said. So, our time this morning, we'll be looking at where spiritual renewal begins, part one. To give you a roadmap of where we're going, our first point will be why we need renewal. Second point will be where renewal begins. And then the third point is the comedy of renewal. So first point, why we need renewal. Now for today, and when I go part two of this, of this sermon, uh, we're looking at a specific story of Israel as they're coming to Mount Sinai in the wilderness where they experience a renewal. And we're looking at that as an example of what does this tell us about renewal. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10 that we're given the story of Israel as an example to instruct us. So we're looking at what can we learn about how they're renewed what does that teach us about what spiritual renewal looks like? Uh, I, um, so the way our small group works, I go to Betty's small group. If you want to spend every two weeks with Betty on a Wednesday night, join our small group. But um, because Mark and I have kids, we take turns. One of us stays home with the kids. So I didn't go this past week, but apparently the question was, is Mike really going to preach on all of Exodus 33? And the answer is no. I'm actually preaching 32 and 33. So obviously, I'm not going to hit the vast majority of what's in here. But anyways, if you turn your Bible to chapter 32, verses 1 to 6, this is where we're going to start. Why we need renewal. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron, and they said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this man Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears, and they brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool, and he made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. To give a context of what's going on in in here, God has just delivered Israel from Egypt through 10 incredibly miraculous plagues. He is shown his power and glory and care for Israel. Uh, He led them through the Red Sea, parted the sea. That's another miraculous act. And then he's been providing for them in the wilderness. He's been giving them manna to eat in the morning. He's brought water from the rock. And here we have about two months after Israel has left Egypt, 
and they're already beginning to make idols. Now again, to understand what's going on, they've they've come to Mount Sinai, they've been at Mount Sinai for an undisclosed amount of time, we're not too sure, and God has been giving to Moses his law. He's already given the Ten Commandments, and what seems to have been the case is Moses was going up for a certain time, maybe a day, but then he'd come back to the camp at night, and and he would give what he had received. But then in Exodus 24, it says that all of a sudden Moses goes up to Mount Sinai and then doesn't come back for 40 days and 40 nights. And it's at the end of those 40 days and 40 nights that we get chapter 32. And we have to put ourselves, again, kind of in Israel's frame of mind. And this is Moses, the one who was God's representative to them. And, and, and we're told that he's gone 40 days and 40 nights, but Israel is never told how long he's going to be gone. And so here's Moses, and he goes up to the mountain one day, and then he doesn't come back. And one day goes by, he doesn't come back, two days, three days. You have no idea what's going on. A couple weeks pass. And the reason why it was such an issue is that it seemed, with Moses being gone, it seemed like God was gone as well. And this brings us to our first reason why we need renewal, because the fact of the matter is that God often does seem absent. Again, the significance of Moses, this is the, this is the, the one who had come to them while they were in slavery saying, God has heard your groans, heard your cries, and he's going to deliver you. And from the Israelites' perspective, he was the one who confronted Pharaoh. He was the one who brought the plagues. He was the one who led them through the Red Sea. He was the one who spoke to the rock and water came forward. He was the one who would commune with God, right? And so when Moses disappears, a God who doesn't have idols means God's gone too. God is absent. Again, Moses didn't tell them he was going to be gone for 40 days. He's just gone for 40 days. And to add to this confusion and urgency, Israel is not exactly in a safe place. They've already been attacked by the Amalekites. And if you remember how that goes, they only win because Moses is able to keep his arms up. Right? When his arms go down, they start losing. And so Moses has his aides hold his arms up. What would have happened if Moses wasn't there? Well, now Moses is gone. They're in a desert place. They have manna every day, but if the manna doesn't show up, how do you feed people of a million? And they're supposed to be going into a promised land where there's a lot of nations a lot more powerful than them who are not going to appreciate them showing up wanting to be neighbors. And so they're in a place of urgency, and again, God seems to be absent. Think of it this way. If you called 911, say, you know, you're, you, you're, you're woken up one night in the middle of the night because someone has broken into your home, you hide in your bathroom, you call 911. You, you might be forgiven some impatience if you're put on hold for an hour. <laughs> you too might begin to look for alternatives. That's Israel. They're not in a safe place, and God seems to be absent. And this also is why we often need renewal, because for us as well, God often seems to be absent. Now, it's important to say God seems to be absent because, of course, for Israel, he wasn't absent. He was on Mount Sinai. He was giving his law to Moses. And even more importantly, we worship a God who is the God of the heavens and the earth. He is not a God who is geographically constrained, and so God is everywhere. He's always present. But if we're going to speak truly to how we experience life is that God oftentimes does seem absent. 
You have Isaiah 6, the beautiful vision of God's glory he gives to Isaiah. And the seraphim sing to one another, the earth is full of the glory of the Lord. And we know that to be true. Yes, God's glory is everywhere. He's present all the time. But Job, in the midst of his unfathomable tragedies, voices a minority report. He says, behold, I go forward, but he is not there. And backward, but I perceive him not. On the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. All too often in the course of our life, that's what it feels like. We look for God, but we don't see him. We want him to be present, but he doesn't seem to be present. And so in pain and loneliness, we wonder, where is God? Why doesn't he speak to me? Why doesn't he comfort me when I need him? When there's so much to be discouraged about in American Christianity and in America in general, we wonder, where is God in all of this? And maybe more kind of ordinarily or mundanely, but no less importantly, it can seem like as our life goes along and we get caught up on our kind of daily routines, and these routines become rote, and there's very little about our lives that seem to speak to majesty and mystery and transcendence, and we wonder where exactly is God in my very explainable life. The fact of the matter is that God in his mysterious providence has created a world where he, the creator and the redeemer, often seems absent. But the interesting thing, again, this is, this is discipleship, this side of eternity. This is the way God made it. We don't understand why. But this is not necessarily a reason for renewal yet. Just because God seems absent doesn't mean it has to be a cause for renewal. Israel could have taken these 40 days and allowed it to be a time to strengthen their trust in the God who has already provided for them, already cared for them. There were many choices they could have made in that time when God seemed absent and they chose to make an idol. It was not inevitable. That's just what they chose. Just because God seems absent doesn't mean that that's a reason for us to be renewed. And likewise, for us, the absence of God can be a source of renewal. It can be a call to go deeper into our trust, to walk by faith, right? Like our heroes of the faith in Hebrews 11. The reason God's seeming absence often brings about the need for renewal, that instead of trusting and waiting upon the Lord, like Israel, we begin to fill in the gaps. We begin to find alternatives begin to fill in that void that God's absence has made. And this is what we see again. This is what Israel does. Again, God is absent to Israel in a time when they are in desperate need. Let's put ourselves in their, in their shoes. They're in danger where they are. They're going to be in danger where they're going, and God seems to be nowhere to be found. And so what does Israel do? They do what makes sense to them. They make a physical idol. Which makes a lot, of, I mean, we're not an, we don't have idols in the sense of physical idols in our culture, so it may seem weird, but think about it. A physical idol, you can put it down in a place, go away and come back a day later and know where you can find your God. That's a lot more convenient than this whole cloud thing that kind of comes and goes as it wants. And you're about to enter into a promised land where you're gonna have to fight for your very existence. There'd be something very comforting about having a presence of God that you can take with you and know it'll always be there because you can see it and touch it and smell it. This is what made sense to them. 
God seems absent, so they filled in the void with what makes sense. And what's really interesting here is that Israel, when they do this, they do not see themselves as turning their backs on Yahweh. It's not like, well, Yahweh failed us, so we're going to turn to Baal or Ashtoreth. What does Aaron say in verse 2? He says, um, sorry, not in verse 2, in, 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 uh, in verse 4. These are the gods of Israel who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. He's like, look, this, this, this is the God that's been leading us the whole time. This is his physical representation. And then again in verse 4, and tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Israel does not view themselves as turning their backs on God. They're just doing what makes sense in the absence of God. But of course the problem is, is that God has already told them you cannot make a graven image. He's already given them the Ten Commandments. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. God's already told them don't do this, but where's God to explain that in this story? God seems absent, so Israel fills in the tension rather than walking in the uncomfortable, even painful tension of faith in the seeming absence of God. We too need spiritual renewal because we also labor in a world where God often seems absent, and so we too begin to fill in the gaps. And this can look like various things. When God is absent to us in our pain, it can lead us to begin to want to rethink who God is. We begin to think maybe God isn't sovereign. Maybe God isn't helping us because he's not, powerful. He's not as powerful as we thought he was. Or maybe we begin to rethink God's goodness because what makes sense to us is no father would ever allow their children to go through what God is allowing us to go through. And so maybe God isn't as good as we thought. And as we fill in the gaps, we distort our view of God. And as Moses said, Hero Israel are your gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. That's exactly what Israel did. And their view of God was distorted. That's one way we sometimes fill in the gaps. Another way, when we feel the absence of God, again, just in our daily lives, right? There's no transcendence. We, we sleep, we wake, we eat, we go to work, we go home, we watch TV, we go to bed. Repeat, ad nauseum. And that's kind of the whole point of Ecclesiastes. Nothing is new under the sun. It's all vanity. It's like, where is, I, I don't see God's finger in this, much less his actual presence. There's no transcendence. I think part of the reason why, as a culture, again, we're, we're so addicted to our screens is because we're just so tragically bored with the mundaneness of our life. And I'm, I'm right there. Okay, so last weekend, Mark and I went to a marriage conference, and that's why Philip preached, so that we could have time to do that. And the wonderful thing about going to a marriage conference is it gives you time to really talk about, hey, how, how are things going? The really bad thing about a marriage conference is it gives you plenty of time to talk about, hey, how are things going? And, um, and you find out things. And so I found out that I have been on my phone too much. It's been a distraction at home. And why? Why would I rather scroll through Facebook, just inane, blah, rather than interact with my family? I don't know. It's a mystery. But I think part of it is because we don't believe that God is actually present more than we can fathom not in the transcendent moments on a mountaintop, but in our day-to-day schedules. When we wake up and we eat breakfast, God is there. When we go to work, God is there. When we do our studies and we take our tests, 
When we're home by ourselves, God is present, but he doesn't seem present. So we distract ourselves rather than living in that tension of faith when God seems absent. So that's another way that we might fill in the gaps. One last one, and I'm, I, I'm gonna um, just bear with me. This sermon ends very hopefully. It ends with good news. So hang with me. We're powering through this. But one last one that we fill in the gaps is sometimes God seems absent in the very things of God. So we approach scripture. God's very word supposed to be living and active, and we find it dry and overplayed, confusing, maybe even parts of it seem offensive. Or we gather for the worshiped body, and we know God is supposed to be present here, but it just seems like such a human endeavor, like God's really present among us in a unique way in this. And we may never say these words, because we know our Bibles, we're good Christians, but we know we're thinking this because our life begins to reflect it. We're all busy people. We have obligations and duties. We got things to do. And it's like, if God doesn't want to show up in his word, I got better things to do with my time. And so we begin to neglect reading the Bible. If God is not going to be present on a Sunday morning, like, I got better things I can do on a Sunday morning. I don't actually. This is my job. But you probably do if God's not here. And so we stop prioritizing the Sunday gathering. Again, God seems absent, so we fill in the gaps, we find alternatives, and we desperately need spiritual renewal. So this is why we need renewal, because we live in a world where more often than not, God is more conspicuous for his absence than his presence. It's a call to live by faith, but faith is existentially painful. Why? Because God's presence is colossal, and that means his absence is colossal as well. And as a result, we tend to fill in the gaps. We tend to find alternatives. We tend to make it work on our own. And that leads us to a place where we desperately need to be renewed by the very spirit of the living God. First point, why we need renewal. This brings us to our second point, where renewal begins. Again, look at chapter 33, verses 1 to 6. The Lord said to Moses, depart. Go up from here you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flown with milk and honey, but I will not go among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people." And when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a moment I should go among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Again, Israel has sinned, and in the seeming absence of God, they've made an idol, and they've sinned against the living God. And so God confronts them through Moses, and we see how renewal begins. It begins with repentance. And there's a few things about Israel's repentance, again, that I think is given for our instruction, that's given for us as a model. And the first thing to notice about this repentance is their sorrow. Again, verse four, when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. 
True repentance will always come with some level of sorrow. Repentance can never be this kind of cool and calculated negotiation with God, like I'm going to weigh it, the pros and cons of, of returning to God, and it's like, well, if, if I walk in this sin, I get this, but I lose, it, it, it can't be like that. There's a genuine sorrow when we realize that we have sinned against the greatest love in the universe, the one who has cared for us. Again, the way that we fill in these gaps, it's a matter of the heart, and so of course, repentance too must be a matter of the heart as well. But what I actually wanna point out in terms of the sorrow is not that they had sorrow, but it's what they grieved over. Again, verse two, look what God says to them. This is God, you know, after, this is God's kind of response to their idolatry. He says, I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites and all the other people. Verse three, so go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. What God has said to, to Israel is, look, you're still gonna get the promised land. You're still gonna get all the goodies. You're gonna go into a land where you'll have flourishing and prosperity, where each one of you will get to sit down under your own olive tree and your children will play in the streets without fear. I'm gonna still do that for you. But it says that Israel mourns. What makes Israel mourn? Well, again, it's what it says in verse three, but I will not go up among you. Israel mourns because God is not with them. And for all of Israel's lack of understanding and faith in their foolishness, they have a moment of clarity here, which is that it doesn't matter how good the promised land may be, it doesn't matter how good the goodies may be, if God's not present, just ashes and dust. What are all the good things in the world? What are all the gifts of the world if we can't have the giver? And this is the essence of genuine repentance that leads to renewal. We grieve because the gods we have bowed down before, the actions we have done, the gaps that we have filled, these have cost us God himself. They've led us away from God. We grieve because God is not with us anymore doesn't matter how good our physical circumstances are. doesn't matter how good my life is. If I can't have God, what does it matter? And this, by the way, is what separates godly grief that leads to renewal from worldly grief. Grief is not a Christian, or sorry, yeah, grief is not a Christian thing. I mean, you you can be any religion and grieve. And sin often brings with it its own built-in consequences. And so the person who grieves over sin because of the built-in social, physical consequences is not repenting, they're just doing what's natural. A spouse cheats on their spouse, and they grieve because they lose their family over it. That's not repentance. You're just grieving over losing your family. Or a student you know, cheats on a test, and their professor catches them, and they fail them, and then they have to go tell their parents why they failed a class, and they grieve over that. It's not repentance. It's just doing what's natural. Our repentance begins when we see how our false idols have cost us God himself. Repentance, true repentance, begins when we say, I must have God. I must have God. I don't care what it costs me. I don't care what I have to give up. I must have God and nothing less. That is where repentance begins. And that's where renewal begins. And this is what we see Israel say. We don't care, God, if you're gonna give us the promised land. If you're not with us, that's a disastrous word. But they don't just feel bad. 
There's another part of this. It's not just the sorrow they experience. It's also the action they take that shows us what real repentance looks like. Again, uh, it says that they take off their ornaments. Verse four, when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned and no one put on his ornaments. Verse six, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments. It's this weird side like note that you read and you're like, okay, what's the deal with the ornaments? Why does this matter? Clearly, Moses, when he wrote this for us, thought it was important to the story. Well, ornaments, they'd be things like rings, uh, earrings, jewelry. Part of it's like, look, if you're going to mourn in repentance, like, dress the part. And we do this too, right? If you show up at a, at a funeral as a man in a baby blue suit and a pink tie, it's going to be offensive. It's like, no, you dress the part. You grieve with the person who's grieving. That's part of it. They're, they're removing what's shiny and flashy and beautiful because they're living out their repentance. But more fundamentally, what they're doing is they're removing an object of temptation. Because what had they done with their ornaments before this? Again, if you go back to chapter 32, what does Aaron say? He says, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. Israel had used their ornaments to make that golden calf. And so what Israel is doing in their repentance is they're removing the opportunity for them to sin in the same way again. True repentance is, 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 is certainly a sorrow, a sorrow of what has cost us in our relationship to God, but there's also a commitment to change that must be part of that process as well. And renewal begins with repentance, again, sorrow, this commitment to turn away from our idols and turn back to God himself. That's where renewal begins. But what meets us in our repentance is so unexpected, so unforeseen, so over the top, that what I'm calling it is the comedy of renewal. And I'll explain what I mean by that as I go on. This brings us to our third point, the comedy of renewal. And this is verses 33, verse, sorry, chapter 33, verses 12 to 17. Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you all have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And God said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here, for how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this is the very thing that you have spoken, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Again, setting the stage that Israel has sinned, They've made an idol two months after God has done unimaginable work in their life. This is not a propitious beginning for the nation of Israel. I mean, God says, you know, in, in chapter 33, with a kind of anthropomorphism, like, I don't know what to even do with you right now. It's like the parent whose kids are just out of control, and you say, go to your room. I'm going to figure out what to do with you later. And the kids are in the room, and they're just waiting to see what their parents are going to do. That's, that's the context and we're given this little vignette in verses 7 to 11 where it describes how the tent of the meeting 
has been moved outside the camp in the midst of this. Before this attentive meeting where God would meet with Moses was in the middle of the camp and the camp was built around it, but now it's moved outside the camp to show that God's presence has left Israel. And now they only worship God from a distance. And so they're waiting. They're the kids up in their bedroom waiting to see what is, what is gonna happen to us. And this is where we get the comedy of renewal. I'm getting this term from a guy named Frederick Buchner. He was an author and Presbyterian minister. He wrote a book called Telling the Truth, The Gospel is Tragedy, Comedy, and Fairy Tale. And what Buchner argues is, is you know, there's these three aspects of the gospel. We have the tragedy, which is what we went over, the, co- the reason for our, our need of renewal, the fact that God often seems absent, and rather than walking by faith, we turn to our own initiatives, we find alternatives, we fill in the gaps, we turn to other gods. That's the tragic. And what Buchner says is the tragedy is somewhat inevitable, considering who we are, the bent of our hearts towards sin and towards wandering, the frailty of who we are, and the fact that we live in a world where God does, in fact, often see absent. It's almost inevitable that the tragic is going to happen. But what God does in response is anything but inevitable. In fact, it's unexpected. In fact, it's so unexpected, there's something funny about it. This is what Buchner says. He says, the comedy of renewal is that what happens not of necessity, not inevitably, but gratuitously, freely, hilariously. And what is astonishing and gratuitous and hilarious is, of course, the grace of God. What can we do but laugh at the preposterousness of it and laugh until the tears run down our cheeks? It's not like a cheap laugh, haha. It's the laugh that is a hairline away from tears because it's so unexpected. It's so gratuitous. It's so beyond what we could have hoped for. Again, this is what, this is what Buchner means. Israel again, two months. <laughs> I'm not, sure what I would, I'm not sure what I would do if a couple came to me and one of them had committed adultery after two months. That's not a propitious beginning to a marriage. What you expect God to do is say, okay, this clearly is not the group I need. Let me find a new group. But instead, Israel repents, and we get verse 14. And God said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. That's not what you expect. And what's even more unexpected, more comedic about this is it's, it's all because Israel asks. Israel's done nothing in terms of, you know, what they deserve. They've done no kind of spiritual attainment, no kind of great feat of penance. They just ask, God, forgive me. It's like this, imagine, imagine there was a businessman who committed great fraud, you know, kind of a Bernie Madoff, and he's embezzled millions of dollars. He's stolen people's savings, their retirements. He's taken it all, and it's gone, and he's in trial. And he stands up in the courtroom, and there's all the people he's defrauded there, and he says, guys, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. Can we just move on? And what would be comedic is that the people said, well, that's good enough for me. No, it's not good enough. That's not what you expect. That's gratuitous to the point of being hilarious. 
This is the grace of God. That not only do we not receive what we deserve, but he goes with us and he gives us rest. And there's a whole other layer of comedic grace in here. It's not just that God forgives Israel because they ask and gives them his grace once again, but it's, it's who he chooses to use. It's how he brings about this renewal. He uses Moses. Let's remember who Moses is. And, then, and before we get to that, Psalm 106 has, one, has a couple of verses where it kind of describes a story, and it says that therefore... God said he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him, turning away the wrath of God. God used Moses to stand in the breach to turn away his wrath. But again, who was Moses? Moses was a man who grew up with great privilege. He was born with a silver spoon in his mouth, as the saying goes. Of course, he wasn't born that way, right? Like he actually had a pretty tragic birth. But he grew up in Pharaoh's household. He never knew want or need. He had the best education in the world. He probably had a guaranteed career in Pharaoh's administration that would lead to lots of power and privilege and prestige. But then Moses gets caught up in scandal. It's not just scandal, he murders someone. And then the boy wonder flees to a nowheresville in the desert and becomes an obscure shepherd. So, so who is Moses, whom God chooses to stand in the breach? He's a privileged playboy turned murderer turned obscure shepherd. Again, not the most promising candidate. And remember when God goes to Moses and says, I want to send you to be a deliverer, and Moses begs God? He's like, no, send someone. I'd send anyone. I don't care who it is. So Moses is like, I've tried this deliverer thing before, and it didn't work out well don't send me. And that's the one whom God brings to stand in the breach. The one who begged God not to send him is now begging God to take his life instead of Israel's. That's unexpected, over the top. That's the comedy of renewal. And of course, 1,500 years later, after Moses we would see the greatest act of gratuitous, free, and hilarious grace when God himself would take on human flesh. The greatest act of comedic grace when the I am becomes a mortal human being. Think about it. The imperishable becomes perishable. The uncreated becomes created. There's... There's nothing more unforeseen or unexpected we could imagine. And like Moses, Jesus would be a less than propitious candidate to be savior of the world. Born to a teenager, again in the midst of scandal. His father almost divorces his mother because Jesus is not his father, is not his father's son. His father is a poor carpenter and rural in a rural country that was obscure in its own right. And yet this was Emmanuel, God with us. And he would stand in the breach, not just for Israel, but for anyone who would simply ask him to. The comedy of renewal is this. It's that in our grief and our sorrow, in our repentance, we approach God and we expect punishment. At the very least, we expect God to be disappointed. 
Maybe put us on a probationary period, like, okay, go to church, but don't read my Bible for six months. Or maybe there's a part of us that worries we're going to show up and God's just going to say, no, sorry, too late. No more renewal. You've had your chance. The comedy of renewal is that we approach God expecting judgment, but God and his son gives us life. The comedy of renewal is that we come to God poor, naked wretches, beaten by the storm, and he makes us princes and princesses. And he gives us a kingdom that is forever, that no storm can ever destroy, that no seeming absence of God can ever erase. And brothers and sisters, hear this with all your strength. One of the greatest comedies of renewal is that no matter how many times we inevitably wander, no matter how many times we fill in the gaps and we find alternatives, no matter how many times we grow apathetic and self-confident, no matter how many times we just fall flat on our face, this grace is offered to us again in the unlikely Messiah who is God himself, Jesus Christ, who if we only ask will cleanse us, will forgive us, and will renew us. Let's pray in his name. Jesus, as we approach you, as those who are poor, miserable wretches beaten by the storm, we ask that you will surprise us again with the wonder of your grace, with the wonder of your renewal. May you place within us the spirit that repents truly, that is willing to give up anything, to do anything, to be anything, if only we might have you. Only you can give us that kind of a heart. Only you can take a heart that is stone and make it flesh. And in the most unexpected turn of events, you do that. We praise you. We worship you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.